Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Caroline Webb. She is a management consultant and executive coach. She spent uh, many years at McKinsey and now runs her own firm, Seven Shift, showing clients how to use behavioral science to boost their professional effectiveness. Caroline is an economist, uh, a former McKinsey partner, and a practitioner. And what I find so interesting is the melding of of the science and the practice. So often we'll speak to academics who are more on the science side. We can speak to consultants or leaders who are on the practice side. What Caroline does very, very well is to um, match and marry the two in her obviously accessible book when you hear the title, How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life, how to use what we know and what we've discovered in the 21st century that is different maybe than what we knew 50 years ago and how that should impact the way we lead our lives on a daily basis. Caroline, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So how to have a good day. That's in some ways both a um, mundane and tangible, accessible uh, promise and a very lofty one, right? Because, you know, how many how many of us end our days going, ah, oh, that didn't work out the way I wanted to. So it's it's both very, uh, you know, tangible and and seems sometimes inaccessible. You you start with you base everything that you write about on three major, I'm going to call them discoveries or insights that um, we seem to have now in a way that we didn't maybe 50 years ago. One from behavioral economics, the two-system brain, one from psychology, the discover, defend axis, and one from neuroscience, which is the mind-body loop. I'm wondering if you can describe each of them uh, briefly and also, why those three? So given how many discoveries we've had over the last half a century, let's say, why are these the three that should really govern the way we think about how we live our lives? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, as you say, I was attempting a rather grand synthesis of the behavioral sciences and thinking about what do we know from neuroscience, from psychology, from behavioral economics that is really directly useful in our working lives. And I was trying to pick out the three big ideas that I found coming up again and again and again in my work with real people in real uh, professional situations. And the two-system brain, to take the first one, is this very core idea that uh, we have lots of complementary systems in our brain, but there's two uh, important ones to know about. One is the automatic system, which takes care of most of what we do from day to day and is very fast and uh, is very heroic in, in shouldering the load of most of what we do. And then there is the deliberate system, which is everything that we do deliberately. So that's our conscious brain that's responsible for self-control, for planning and for reasoning all the grown-up stuff that you might find surprising in a toddler. <laughs> and the two-system brain concept is that each of those two systems has 
pros and cons, has strengths and weaknesses, but we kind of behave as if, you know, we, we don't really pay attention to, to those strengths and weaknesses. And especially with a deliberate system, which is incredibly smart. It's, it's, it's responsible for all of our creative insight and our smart decisions, but it's limited in capacity, can only do one thing at, at a time, and is comparatively slow, gets tired comparatively easily. And if you understand that about your brain, then actually a lot of what feels difficult at work becomes um, easier to understand and it becomes easier to imagine how you might create the conditions for you to be at your best and for you to thrive. So, let so me, that's the first one. So let me check something about that. So when we see people, you know, when we hear about flow and we see someone in their flow, are they, do they tend to be operating out of that sort of first system, the sort of autonomic system? Well, flow is an interesting, interesting state because you're, I mean, everything we do harnesses both our automatic system and our deliberate system. Um, flow is interesting in that it's very explicitly describing a state where you're doing both because you're doing something which feels very natural and that feels, uh, gives you a sense of ease, but you're also stretching yourself. So that it's also a challenging, uh, a challenging situation that you're, that you're handling. So yes, it is, it's actually a lovely uh, demonstration of the fact that the automatic system is very powerful and shouldn't be dismissed as uh, perhaps the illogical or um, uh, stupid part of the brain. Sometimes you read literature that says, oh, we're dumb, stupid, illogical animals because of this automatic uh, knee-jerk uh, system that we have. No, actually, the automatic system is incredibly powerful and represents uh, you know, a lot of the things that feel very natural to us day to day. It's just that when we think about stretching ourselves and learning new things and pushing ourselves in a direction that, um, you know, typically we associate with high performance, we're also engaging the deliberate system. And we have to know how to do that uh, in the best possible way. And leaders need to know how to create the conditions for other people to, to be able to, um, to, to have their deliberate system function at its best. You know, it, it, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And it's also tremendously fun that when I think about the times, and I'm, I'm going to take two different examples. One is skiing, which I've done all my life, and, and I teach skiing and I've raced. When I'm skiing and when I'm speaking, right? One mm. you would think is very, very physical. The other is sort of very intellectual. But the truth is when I'm in both of those modes, I'm using every part of who I am to show up. That when I'm skiing, I'm completely and totally focused on what I'm doing in a way that you know, I couldn't even dream of multitasking. It's the same thing mm. when I'm speaking. And yeah. I guess there's some moment where when you're really on the edge of what you do and you're doing it in a tremendously powerful way and you're, you've practiced it a lot and you're really good at it and you're challenged and you're at your edge, that, that, that seems like you're really operating on both the sort of deliberate and the automatic process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and interesting that you mentioned the point about single tasking. You know, when I think about uh, when I think, think about the leadership implications of the work that I do, one very obvious one that flows from the two system brain is that if you understand that people's conscious brains, their deliberate system can only do one thing at a time it becomes a little bit clearer why you might want to establish team norms around email and messages. That actually, if people are being bombarded by emails all the time, it's really very difficult for them to avoid multitasking. And we know that multitasking, because our 
deliberate system isn't really able to do it, it makes us make between two and four times as many errors and it slows us down and it makes us less creative. So as a leader, you know, getting clear on, well, actually, when do I need a response to my email? And how can I encourage my team to go offline for periods of time so that they can think clearly and do their best work? Um, that, that can be really a distinctive edge in the way that your team operates if, if you're willing to embrace that as a, as a manager or a leader. And you're saying that it's really critical to be thoughtful about when we are engaging which system in some ways, because there are certain things we can do in certain systems, you know, certain things we can do when we're being deliberate and certain things we can do when we're being automatic. And that if we misuse them, in a sense, that slows us down and gives us errors. Yeah. And whenever, you know, whenever our deliberate system is tired, our automatic system is more likely to be uh, driving our right, driving our decisions. And, you know, sometimes automatic decisions are totally fine. I mean, if I'm trying to decide on a place to go for lunch, I don't actually want to engage in a huge um, <laughs> spreadsheet analysis. Really? Because to me, <laughs> to me, that often is my hardest decisions. <laughs> so, you know, it's helpful that our brain automates some of these more basic decisions every day. Um, the tricky thing is that if you don't deliberately uh, recognize that your automatic system is always going to want to take shortcuts, its job is to lighten the load on your brain. So it's always going to want to take shortcuts. It's always going to be subject to uh, what uh, behavioral economists call heuristics, what the rest of us might call biases, where we're just saying, you know what, if it looks good, it probably is good. You know, if this person looks competent, they probably are competent. We, we, we jump to conclusions, which is fine for a lot of the time. But if you're making a decision that really matters, you need to know that you're going to be subject to groupthink. You're going to be subject to um, anchoring and confirmation bias and all these sorts of things. And there are actually some really simple routines that you can institute in your, uh, in your problem solving, in your team sessions that really help you to get around uh, those um, instinctive biases that our automatic brain in, introduces. And it seems like the whole concept that you have is let's use our deliberate thinking brain in order to make decisions about when to allow our automatic brain to operate versus when to really focus on our deliberate brain. Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. And in fact, I think there's a meta theme across the whole book, which is that sense of being deliberate. You know, it, it's recognizing that the more that we understand the reasons that we think, feel and behave the way we do, and indeed understand the way the reasons that other people think, feel and behave the way they do, we can be far more conscious and deliberate about things that seem to be kind of random in our lives. And we can be more... Um, more mindful of the factors which drive high performance and drive low performance. And a lot of things which seem to be imposed on us uh, actually become under, under our control once we understand a little bit of this, uh, this behavioral science. So let's talk about the second principle in effect, which is the discover-defend axis. Yeah, well, that's a good example of the, the kind of control that I'm talking about because um, it turns out that most people... Uh, when you when you see bad behavior in most people around you, it's usually not because they're a psychopath. Um, it's actually statistically unlikely that they are a psychopath. It's actually far more likely that their brain has gone on what I call uh, into defensive mode. And the way it works is this. Uh, our brains are constantly scanning the uh, environment around us for threats to move towards, to seek out, discover, and threats to defend against. And when we're more focused on threats, 
uh, we are uh, running the risk of putting our brain on the defensive, which you know many people know of as the fight, flight, or freeze response. And the thing that's really important to know about that is, first of all, it takes almost nothing to trigger it. It can be something as minor as feeling that you're being treated unfairly or someone is uh, stepping on your toes in a meeting. Uh, anything which undermines your sense of competence or autonomy, your sense of purpose, uh, fairness, inclusion, respect. These are kind of existential, but they're strong enough that if they're taken away from us, then our brain goes on the defensive. And the other thing to know about going on the defensive is that when your brain is in defensive mode, there's less activity in your prefrontal cortex, and that's where your deliberate system mostly lives. And as a result of that, what that means is that when you're under pressure or when other people are under pressure and feeling stressed, they become less smart and less wise. And that is a hell of a shame <laughs> because it means that it's one of those things that, you know, becomes obvious when you think about that time in the meeting when someone put you on the spot and you couldn't think of the brilliant thing to say, but it comes to you two, two hours afterwards. That's because your brain has gone slightly on the defensive through being put on the spot. And if you expand that out to thinking about people's behavior in the workplace, so much of the knee-jerk or short-termist or just generally kind of dumb or unpleasant behavior that you see is a result of people's more sophisticated brain, their deliberate system being very slightly offline. So this might bring us to this, this next piece, which is the mind-body loop. But I want to ask a question about the discover-defend axis, which is that when you're in that moment when you're in the moment when someone has triggered you and you mm -hmm. might be going yourself, you know, maybe you've triggered someone else, but maybe they've triggered you and you've gone yourself into the defend and, and you're acting in a way that you don't even really love. And maybe you even recognize it. Maybe your deliberate brain recognizes it and goes, you know, I'm, I'm being aggressive with this person. I don't want to be aggressive with this person, but I really don't trust them. And the thing they said to me, they just said that to me, just made me so angry. And I know it shouldn't make me angry, but I'm angry. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, you're, you're like, how do we remove ourselves from the grip that, that these uh, triggers have? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I was actually over this weekend. I, there was, uh, I was staying at a hotel and there was, Someone who was supposed to be very welcoming because she was the sort of innkeeper and and I was a bother to her, like my very existence was a oh. bother to her the moment I walked in. And I found myself so annoyed and I kind mm -hmm. of did the nice, you know, I, I, I was very nice with her. I did this, but yeah. there was very little that I could do to change what what happened to be become my attitude, which yeah. was one of sort of anger and frustration and like, I never want to stay here again. And I really hate this woman. And <laughs> like, you know, all the stuff, which, which I think was sort of probably beyond what would have been called for, but I was really yeah. kind of triggered and I acted nicely, but how do I change the, the feeling that I have so that yep. I can have access to, you know, the deliberate brain in a sense, yep. so I could make smarter choices. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is you notice it, you recognize what's going on. I mean, I think it helps to helps people to understand that actually, first of all, this is a very natural reaction. And we're all experiencing, you know, these small threats and these small triggers every single day. And so knowing that that's what's going on allows you to, uh, to sometimes it can be enough to allow you to notice, ah, right, I know this is what's going on. Okay. And then ask yourself a question, what really matters most here? And that can be enough uh, for small triggers to get you back on track. You know, it's actually it's funny you, what you were just so eloquently describing there about 
she was making me feel like this and making me feel like that because of this, that and the other. One of the things that I love in the research is the power of affect labeling. The fact that if you take a pen and paper and you write down how you feel and why you feel that way and then set it aside, research has shown that it reduces that state of alert, that state of being triggered gets you out of defensive mode in other, way, in, in other words. And it's, um, it's one of the strangely, most strangely powerful things. If I get to the end of the day and I haven't been able to move beyond the state of being triggered, it's my go-to technique for just writing, <laughs> writing it out, sometimes then screwing it up in a ball and throwing it in the, in the trash. It <laughs> yeah, makes might, it easier to sleep. <laughs> this might just explain why and how I write my entire blog. It's actually very helpful to me. <laughs> But there are a ton of techniques that have been shown to reduce that level of activation. Distancing is another favorite. You know, when you ask yourself, what will I think about this when I look back on this in a year's time? Or what will I, what would I argue, uh, what would I say to a friend who's in the same situation that I'm in right now? Anything which takes you out of the heat of the moment and puts you at, at some distance has also been shown to reduce that, uh, that defensiveness in your brain and therefore allow you to think more clearly and be more of your best self when, when faced with an annoying innkeeper who is probably not a psychopath, who might be having a bad day, who's probably being triggered by something. Right. And I think all of that is true. Where do we draw the line between distancing ourselves and repression? Repression is so interesting. You definitely don't want to be doing repression, it turns out, because when we, re when we seek to repress emotions... Uh, it's been shown. Well, it's been shown. It just doesn't really work. Uh, so, if we're annoyed and we are trying to tell ourselves, "Don't be annoyed. Don't be annoyed. Don't be annoyed." Um, not only do we know that our emotions are strangely contagious, um, that the that if we feel stressed, that that stress response is strangely uh, transmissible, even when we're not working with the person that uh, we're transmitting this to, even when we're not even speaking to them. Um, but actually suppressing has been shown to increase the feeling of stress that you're feeling, perhaps because you're trying so hard. Uh, and, therefore, and that also gets picked up by the other person. So it's far better to actually label how you feel and then say, okay, uh, you know, what, what do I do now? What really matters most? It helps to ask that kind of purposeful question because purpose is inherently rewarding to our brains. And what we're trying to do after dampening the initial response is get our brains more focused on reward than on threat. In other words, get us back into discovery mode rather than uh, defensive mode. And purpose is a nicely rewarding thing to, uh, to, to present as, a, as a, an alternative thing to think about to our brains. So that's why it helps to say, hang on, what really matters to me most here? And how do I take the first step towards that? Tell us about the mind-body loop. Mm, it's interesting. So uh, we kind of are aware that our mind uh, is connected to our body and vice versa. I mean, we know that if we sleep badly, that it's really hard to be quite as hilarious <laughs> and, um, and creative the next day. So we know that our physical state has an impact on our mental state. Many people know about the research suggesting that staying fit and active helps you um, uh, stave off dementia and uh, other age-related cognitive decline. And yet, what a lot of people don't know is that the, the link is pretty immediate. So we can, we can see lots of evidence that just a few minutes of physical activity, jumping about, going for a brisk walk, 
can boost our focus and our mood immediately, not just in the long run, but immediately. And I think this, this research is incredibly encouraging uh, because many of us know that we should exercise, but I think it's a very different kind of equation to say, actually, if I get up from my desk and go for a walk and, you know, I don't know, do some jumping jacks or whatever, that's actually going to deliver immediate benefits to how I feel and what I'm able to do. I think that's, you know, that's easier for the average person to contemplate than to think, oh, this is good for me in the long run. It seems like the correlation or the connection is even in deeper in some ways. I mean, Amy Cuddy has written very beautifully about you know, certain poses that yeah. if you hold them, your physical body uh, actually permeates your emotional uh, state. And, that, you know, and, and holding your arms up high in the air will, will change how you're feeling. It might, you may not even have to jump. You may not even have to leave the floor in order to get that <laughs> kind of invigorated rush. That's uh, right. That so, you, it, it, you know, it, we know that when we are happy, we tend to smile. Uh, we know that when we are relaxed, we tend to breathe deeply. And we know that when we're confident, we tend to stand tall. And it turns out that uh, our brain and our body don't really much care about the direction of causation. Um, and that doing any of those things in reverse will create, um, create a significant effect. So when we smile, even if it's a kind of lame smile, and we're really kind of struggling to find something to smile about, been shown to boost our mood when we breathe more deeply it's one of the reasons that uh, all of that sort of uh, tradition of you know take a deep breath when you're stressed well it, it turns out yes it does actually tell your body that somehow you can't be breathing deeply if there's a if there's a threat nearby and therefore you start to relax and the same goes for the power posing work that um that amy uh, amy cuddy's been so um uh, uh vocal and uh, eloquent in explaining to the world um and you know, that's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, this, this phrase, which some people love and some people hate, the sort of fake it till you make it, is really, uh, really powerful. That there's a, a, an enormous amount of evidence to suggest that if we adopt um, the physical stance that's associated with being happy, relaxed, confident, that our brain thinks, all oh, right, okay, I better get, on, get with the program. You know, it's interesting because I want to I want to pull all this together now, and it's and you do this beautifully. In fact, I was so delighted to um, see that you had an appendix C, because I feel like the <laughs> your appendix C. You know, having read the entire book, my my sort of question left uh, left with me was, you know, there's so much richness to everything that I'm reading. How do I actually you know, pull this together and you do it beautifully in Appendix C. And I want to just share this uh, before asking you to, to expand on it a little bit. Um, I was, uh, it's, it's, it's how all of this works. I was mountain biking uh, over the past week and I was in a very difficult mountain biking situation. I was on a very technical single track trail with a lot mm -hmm. of rocks uh, on it. And I was really on my edge. In fact, arguably I was well past my edge and <laughs> And I realized in that moment, I was holding my breath, and and I and I started to bring this methodology that we're talking about into that mountain biking, and I started to deliberately breathe, and I started to think about all these different things that I've read, right, in that moment on my edge, and I'm thinking about Amy Cuddy, and I'm thinking about you, and... And Kelly McGonigal has written this beautiful book. She'll be on the podcast, The Upside of Stress. 
which talks about how a change in your belief about stress actually changes the impact that stress has on your body. So I'm sitting here and I'm biking and I'm intentionally breathing and I'm lowering my shoulders and I'm still in as chaotic and challenging a single track uh, uh, mountain biking course as, as, as I can handle or maybe even a little beyond. And I'm thinking, okay, this is good for me because it's stress that pushes me and I'm going to think of this as good for me. And, and I managed not to fall, but it very fundamentally changed my experience. And, and the whole point of your book, How to Have a Good Day, is to say, you know, all of this research is interesting and most interesting in, in, in its usefulness for how we live our lives and how, you know, whether it's mountain biking or whether it's leading or whether it's working on a tough project with challenging colleagues, how do we, we're living in a chaotic world where we get pinged with emails and texts every three seconds, how do we bring what we know about science and translate it in a way that helps us to lead our lives more productively, more joyfully, in a more connected way with other people. So if you could leave us maybe with painting a little bit of a picture of drawing from from all of these different pieces that we've talked about, how to maybe uh, structure a little bit of a day that allows us to take advantage of what we know and live our lives most fully. Mm, that's a nice invitation. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I wrote the book so that you could dive in at any point. You know, there's a chapter on managing tensions and there's a chapter on you know, conveying confidence and so on. So I did try and structure it so that you could keep it on your desk and dive in, you know, wherever you most needed it. But there's no doubt that you can um, rework your daily schedule to to just weave in a lot of this stuff. So, for example. Um, one of the things that's most powerful for me, at least, uh, as someone who's not a morning person, by the way, so always struggles with, uh, with the morning routine, is the power of um, understanding how selective attention works and setting intentions. And the way that that works is that because your deliberate system can only process part of reality, you're filtering out a lot of stuff all the time. And what you tend to notice, see and hear consciously is uh, typically, whatever matches what's already top of mind for you, which is how you know you can get out of bed the wrong side and everybody some, suddenly somehow seems to be a jerk. It's not that they've become really awful. It's that you're noticing only the bad stuff because your brain is deciding, oh, well, you're in a bad mood, so therefore the most salient, the most relevant things for you to see are anything that confirms that the world is a terrible place. So we're constantly seeing only part of reality. So how powerful is it to actually say, you know what, if I know that my starting point will determine what I actually see and hear, why not be more deliberate about my starting point? So actually taking, and honestly, it can take 15 seconds. Some people I know actually do it in a more involved way and they'll take 15, 20 minutes and they'll think about the most important things that are happening during the day and what they want to have top of mind so that it shapes their experience. You know, for me, it's often I'm walking to my first meeting, I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> whatever I have top of mind is going to determine what I see. If I walk in and I think this person's going to be a jerk, I'm going to see that they're a jerk. What is it that I actually want to have top of mind? What's my bigger goal? And that will totally shape what I experience. Um, and that is probably the most powerful thing that I can do in the morning. Um, and then as you're thinking about your tasks, um, there are... <sighs> Lots, there's lots of interesting work to show that, as I mentioned earlier on, we're terrible at multitasking. But what does that mean? It means that actually the more you can single task through your day, the quicker you'll get your work done and the better you'll do it. So thinking about in practice, as you look ahead, 
what is the most important thing you need to do in the day that requires most brain power? And how can you be totally focused on that? You know, what, what would it take to remove distractions while you're focusing on that? And that might mean you need to batch your email processing two or three times a day instead of two or three times a minute, for example. Um, and the more you can think about single tasking and grouping together um, the tasks that are, that are similar to each other, the less you're asking your brain to switch from one thing to the next and multitask like crazy, which we know causes us to be less smart and, and less productive. So single tasking as much as possible. Um, there are so many, Peter, I don't know really uh, where to go next. Um, I think one other thing that I, I like to do uh, whenever I'm starting a meeting is to, is to make sure that I'm asking some kind of positive question that puts everybody um, into that discovery mode that gets them left focused on whatever is threatening or challenging in the situation to something that's more positive. So, you know, I might start by saying, what's our ideal uh, outcome by the end of this meeting? It sounds kind of obvious, but so often you just sort of plow in. And the more you can say, what's our ideal situation? What's our first step towards that? Um, the more you can frame difficult discussions with, uh, with a positive question, the easier it is to keep people out of defensive mode and in high-performance uh, discovery mode. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, I mean, apart from obviously being really attentive to the importance of sleep, I mean, to the point of really restructuring my days to make sure that I'm getting enough sleep, knowing the cognitive impact that that has, um, I always do something um, with my husband and we sit on the couch and we ask each other what were the good things that happened during the day. And there's an interesting reason for that, um, several interesting reasons. One is that the more you think about good things, the more that your brain looks out for them. But the other is that there's something in uh, behavioral, behavioral economics called the peak end effect. And it turns out that we, when we look back on the quality of a day or actually a conversation or just a, 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 any kind of experience, we don't remember everything about it. We actually tend to rate the quality of the experience based on just two data points, one being the most intense moment, whether it's good or bad, that's what they call the peak, and the end. And so you can't always engineer the most amazing inspirational peak, especially if it's not been a great day. But you can engineer ending on a high by making sure at the end of the day you look back and think, okay, what went well? And honestly, sometimes, you know, it is really, <laughs> we have to grit our teeth a little bit and say, well, I remembered my umbrella. <laughs> what a blessing. But the fact that you end the day by reviewing what went well means that you're engineering a situation where you're ending on a high. And as a result, your day gets essentially stored in your memory banks as a better day. And the way that we remember our days eventually becomes uh, the way that we think of our life. So that's, uh, that's a few, few ideas. I love that. And I think there's a few things to underscore. I mean, one is you're really speaking very eloquently just about intention, right? Which is to yeah. be, and this is that sort of system two brain, the sort of deliberate brain, which is to be very intentional about how you're going into an experience and how you're coming out of an experience. Exactly. And exactly. that in effect that that's, you know, that's, that's what we have to do in our day, both at the beginning and the end. And, and I have to say, I'm actually both touched and inspired by the sort of offhanded umbrella uh, comment, because it's so true, which is that ultimately you can have whatever happens in your day happen in your day, but little things that are, you know, hardly the most important thing in your life, but 
but yet they they seem to hold substance, which is, oh, I brought my umbrella and it poured and I actually walked home dry. And there's something that gave me pleasure about that, especially I, I'm not proud of this looking at everybody else soaking wet. And, 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 you know, it brings both humor, but also like a sense of reality that, yeah. you know, we could be working on the biggest projects and the most profound ideas, but our lives are built out of realities that uh, are based in whether we brought our number umbrella on a rainy day and yeah. that that's that's very true also yeah so, and, and the whole reason I, I for that. focusing on the unit of the day was there's a lot out there on you know how to do your greatest strategic thinking or how to you know pick the best possible next career step but actually there's not that much focused on the minutiae of the you know the everyday the kind of the quotidian the kind of tiny steps that you take from one meeting to the next from one task to the next and there's so much uh, in that that we can end engineer to create uh, a, a working working life that is more enjoyable and, and more effective in every way. So I hope that um, I'm, I'm thrilled that you like those those small steps. It's definitely a book that's full of, full of those sorts of small steps. Thank you. Caroline Webb, the book is How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life. I would add to that title that it's not just your working life, it's your life life. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Caroline, you do really a beautiful job translating, you know, academic ideas into you know, very real, tangible, on-the-ground uh, actions that we can take to live our lives more powerfully, more joyfully. Uh, and I thank you for writing the book. Caroline, thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a treat. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.